Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to historian Ian Mackay about his recent history of the new left in Toronto in the 1960s and 1970s. Ian Mackay is one of Canada's most prominent scholars of Canadian 20th century history. He now holds an endowed chair in Canadian history at McMaster University. He also heads up the L.R. Wilson Institute of Canadian History at that university, and that institute is one of the supporters of our Witness to Yesterday podcast series. His books and articles have influenced the way in which Canadian historians think about our history, and I previously interviewed him on his book, The Vimy Trap. Today, we are going to talk about his most recent book, Radical Ambition, The New Left in Canada, which he co-authored with Peter Graham. This book was published by Between the Lines in 2019. I'm also very proud to say that this book won the Floyd S. Chalmers Award in Ontario history. This is a major book award administered by the Champlain Society. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. Well, first of all, let me congratulate you and Peter Graham on winning the Chalmers Award. I must say that you've given us a very comprehensive history of the new left in Toronto during the 1960s with its very long tail in the 1970s right into the early 1980s. The depth and the breadth of the work is really formidable. I was amazed at the multiplicity of sources that you both used to reconstruct this history. So can you give us an idea of at least some of the primary documentary sources that you use? for this book. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Radical Ambition is based on Peter's doctoral thesis at Queen's, with me adding two chapters and a note for further reading, plus throwing in my two cents worth here and there. The primary research was primarily undertaken by Peter. He put a lot of emphasis on the Toronto Daily newspapers as sources, and that's very useful because it establishes a kind of factual timeline against which other people and other sources can be measured. He did a fair number of interviews with activists, consulted copious pamphlets and underground newspapers put out by the new leftists, and looked intensively at their institutional records, which are really rich. Some of them are incredibly eye-opening. So we both put a lot of effort into giving new leftists a chance to explain how they themselves saw the world. Now, a term like the new left really doesn't have a meaning unless it's compared to something that we might call the old left. So can you define what you and Peter mean by the new left and how it was different than what came before? We start off the book with Peter Zofsky's observation in McLean's magazine in 1965 when he was checking out the young people in Toronto and Montreal. And he said there was something different about these radicals He wrote, they weren't the agrarian radicals of old. They did not meet in union halls. They weren't like the beatniks that he'd met in earlier times, but they seemed to be different in the degree of their protest and also in its kind. They are a new breed. That's from Peter Zofsky in 1965. So what was new about them, I'd say was kind of five things. 
five themes of leftism that they basically combined in new and distinctive ways. First of all, there's that key unifying idea of liberation. This is an epoch in which all the empires around the world are collapsing, when there are anti-colonial struggles, when the atom bomb is on, at the front of everyone's consciousness, when the struggle for peace means a, a war for life and death. So new leftism is forged right in the midst of all of these struggles against this new world order, national liberation struggles, you could call them. So black radicals, a little bit later indigenous radicals, saw themselves as transnational liberation movement activists, and they were connected, deeply connected in their own minds with people of color throughout the Western world, in Africa, throughout the third world. This is what it really meant to them to be a new leftist, different than the old Communist Party, certainly different than the Social Democrats. Second thing, in addition to national liberation, it meant community. And by this, the new leftist meant something, not just like a community the way we use it in everyday speech, like he lives in a community X. It's more like community is a rich, big ideal. Collectivity pursuing their own projects of local control, social action. Third, the new leftists everywhere emphasized self-determination. So they really want people to determine their own fates, their own lives. From a new leftist standpoint, when workers are treated as things in their workplace, students are treated like so many passive receptacles for facts. When gays and lesbians suffer psychic and violent damage because of their sexuality, when women are objectified, all of these diminish their experience of life. And they really want a form of leftism that says not just workers in the working class, but all of these people should be liberated from their oppression. And a fourth thing for new leftists, a genuinely radical and socialist way of doing politics, a better way of life was not going to emerge after the, the magic day of the revolution. You had to do it now. You had to put your body on the line in demonstrations. You had to live in collectives and communes. You had to free yourself from the mindless compulsions of everyday materialism. And finally, and it kind of sums up what New Leftist Raptor was this ideal of participatory democracy. This idea of a much richer, fuller, deeper democracy in which members of the community are empowered to liberate themselves. So by the 1980s in Toronto and in Montreal and other Canadian cities, but we focus on Toronto, there's a vast network of community health clinics and law clinics, libraries, free schools, solidarity groups with national liberation struggles. And they're all in operation at the same time. Oppositional newspapers, op oppositional cable TV stations. So where this differs from the old left, I guess, is the new leftists weren't hung up on the idea of the party. They weren't hung up on that, having to have one big institutional core of your leftism. They were after something quite different. Uh, they were really after the idea of self-regulating free democratic communities and all kinds of different spheres. So one of the stories that we tell in Radical Ambition is how the old left really tried to contain and, and marginalize these new leftists. But ironically, those old leftists, at the end of the day, ended up sounding very much like the new leftists they wanted to defeat. 
that in a nutshell is new leftism. Well, thank you so much for that great explanation. But why the focus on Toronto? Was it really the focal point for the new left in Canada? And what was unique, if anything, about the city and the new left movement within the city? In a way, one answer would be, well, nothing is all that special about Toronto. Um, it's a big, booming North American city. Many of the patterns you find in Toronto that we go into could be found anywhere on the continent, in New York City, in Philadelphia, San Francisco, even Mexico City. Toronto New Leftists imported many of their theories. They've worked on many models drawn from leftists from elsewhere. None of that's disputed by us. So you could say, yeah, if you were a new leftist coming to Toronto from Paris or Montreal or San Francisco, you'd recognize the debates, you'd recognize a lot of the currents, you'd recognize a lot of the books that people are reading. But, and let's really underline this but, over time, Toronto's new leftists started to ground themselves more completely in their particular environment and they started to send out to the world their own highly original versions of new leftism in many different spheres. So just three examples of publications that were based in Toronto and had worldwide influence. One is the Body Politic, the gay and lesbian publication of the 1970s. It attained a readership in places like Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain. This magazine is about schools read across the continent as a very distinctive contribution to how do you liberate education, get students out of what they call the meat grinder of the educational system. And finally, and maybe most oddly, the Emergency Librarian, a publication that reflected the drive to make libraries bastions of people's power. So, you know, to go back to your question, sure, you'll find parallels to all these experiments in many other Canadian cities, in Montreal in particular, which maybe was the real core of Canadian new leftism. But Toronto does stand out for its size, and also I'd say for the leftist lasting impact on Toronto politics. And that's a really important point. Toronto new leftism was a big movement, I would say a successful movement for social justice with lasting achievements. So if you think of today's feminism, movements of racialized people, environmentalism, LGBTQ struggles, and so on and so forth, you'll go back and you'll find so many of the origins of those struggles and movements in the 60s. And that's what we find so really, really exciting about Toronto New Leftism. Well, let's shift now to the uh, anti-war movement. Now, clearly, uh, it was concentrated in the United States for obvious reasons. But what struck me, and maybe I'm wrong, but the anti-war movement seemed to be almost as powerful in Toronto, that the protests against the Vietnam War were extremely large. Many were motivated by this. Why, why was this the case? And what was the impact of the anti-war movement overall in solidifying the new left? Or did it even do that? I think it would be really, really hard to overstate the significance of the war in Vietnam for this cohort of leftists, because it symbolized everything that they thought was wrong about the capitalist world around them. It seemed in their eyes to pit a people who were struggling for self-determination against a ruthless empire 
that was raining napalm and orange and orange down upon them. It was fought against a racialized people, often in racialized language. And for a new leftist, it was being fought for the crassest of motivations. So I grew up in Sarnia, Ontario, where one of the largest employers was Dow Chemical, proud manufacturers of napalm. So one of the memories I have of the 60s is a you know, press coverage from Dow Chemical saying, why is Dow Chemical making napalm? Isn't it great that we're doing so and defending the, defending the interests of the West? So for me, growing up in Sarnia, it was pretty easy to connect the struggles of the peasants in Vietnam and all those children being burned with napalm to the people I saw around me every day in church and in, in other venues who would be apologizing for what I would consider a crime against humanity. So I don't think I was at all unusual. I think many people were repulsed by that war. And an additional thing to remember is that this is a time when many, many war resistors are coming north from the United States and thousands of them are coming to Toronto. So that adds another element to why the, this war in Vietnam was seen as so pivotal for this generation. So Ian, I'm gonna put you on the spot now and make you our witness to yesterday. Can you take us back to the early 1970s in Toronto, maybe using the example of a new, newly radicalized student living in perhaps the annex neighborhood of Toronto, what might you be seeing, experiencing, hearing that would not have existed a decade before? Yeah, I think, first of all, we want to say where I'd be living. I'd probably be living, if I'm a kind of vintage new leftist, I'd be living in alternative housing space, i.e. a commune or a co-op. And these range from places where people live fairly conventional middle-class lives under one roof, to experiments in which private rooms were abolished, clothing was equally shared, and everyone slept with everybody else. Such alternative arrangements were fairly widespread, and out of them came many experiments and new leftism. So you'd be living in this kind of distinctive atmosphere every day. Uh, an awful lot of the gay and lesbian movement, uh, much of left-wing feminism, was shaped by people who, who were living otherwise, as I would put it, in these communes, in these alternative living arrangements or they wanted to, right? <laughs> so they really want to run these spaces democratically. They want to run them in a fair way. They want to experiment with the way men and women interact. Some of these people turn to consciousness raising groups and that expression consciousness raising does originate in an earlier new leftism, but this, this leftism takes it and runs with it. So those are, that's where you'd be living. Where are you going to go shopping? Well, if you're, you know, a classic new leftist, you would want to shop in a, place that affirmed your values. You would want to shop at a, one of the newly established food co-ops. You would want to read a left-wing community newspaper. You would want to tune in to a left-wing television show on cable TV. And then you would, and your housemates might want to go and demonstrate against the war in Vietnam, or later on the various wars the Americans are waging in Central America. A third thing is that you'll be immersing yourself intensively with passion in left-wing literature. So if you think of the big heavies in the international world, you'll be thinking of Herbert Marcuse, France Fanon for sure, Che Guevara. But 
Also in Canada, you'd be thinking of Pierre Valliere and Howard Adams, Charney Guattel and Dorothy Smith. These were all people who were giving you a new way of looking at the world, one that was critical of pretty well everything that the mainstream and your parents stood for. And a fourth, you might be inclined to see recreational drugs as gateways to expanding your consciousness, and you would be start gravitating maybe to new forms of experimental theater and music, uh, art. And fifth, as you try to establish a path through your own life, you might well want to do so in a way that reflected not the rat race of a business civilization, but your own values of solidarity, equality, and genuine democracy. So you wouldn't really want to buy into the rat race. So this is the golden age of the community health clinic, the parent-run gender equal daycare, and the ward associations all over Toronto, where people are really trying to do grassroots democracy in the community. You would spend a lot of time as this young new leftist in meetings, meeting after meeting after meeting, a lot of long meetings. And everybody in these meetings has got to have the right to have their say. You shouldn't have a hierarchies telling, shutting people up. So a lot of them went on, you know, till the early, early hours of the morning. And this was the kind of new left experiment in participatory democracy. So five big things that I think this young new leftist would be up against in, in this brand new world of Toronto in the 1970s. And it wouldn't have borne much resemblance to the Toronto of the 1950s. Uh, it really is a different space. So just uh, briefly describe the experimental free university in residence that is known as Rochdale College that was on Bloor Street in Huron, I actually lived right near it for a number of years and used to see it all the time and wondered about its history. But it's, of course, located at the edge of the University of Toronto campus. What was this? And was there any connection between Rochdale College and the New Left Movement? And you know that what was this? is going to generate very different answers depending on who you ask, right? <laughs> so if you ask, I would say a mainstream Toronto business person during the heyday of Rochdale, 1968 to 1975, you would say this place is a disaster zone. It's an 18 story building on Bloor Street. Uh, it's initially conceived as just one more addition to the University of Toronto's accommodation system. So from that the perspective, the critical perspective, you say, gee, this place is a haven of drugs and mayhem and disorder and you know it should be shut down from the new left perspective which i'm closer to um i would say yes of course it had problems all experiments have problems but it could also be seen as a way where people are trying to work out a way that they could live otherwise in freedom generate new forms of education new forms of spirituality Sure, it had connections with the hippie movement of Yorkville, and some people said it was, you know, Yorkville gone high rise. But it really was, in many ways, a new left experiment. You can find, you know, alternative courses, you found cultural experiments, you found publishing houses coming out of this. So, in many ways, I think Rushdale, you know, deserves a, a second look. And we try and give it briefly one, and maybe some other people should pick this up. Is, Rochdale was a cultural experiment, a cultural experiment in living otherwise. And for many people, and I think especially many feminists who came out of the Rochdale experiment, it changed their lives. 
Well, the new left seems sandwiched between the NDP on the one hand and the Communist Party on the other, at least to me. And I'd like you to comment whether that's an accurate perception. But uh, for sure, it's the new left seem to pose a real threat, maybe an existential threat to both of those parties. And it even influenced the Liberal Party to some extent. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I, I mean, to to a point, I, I I fully agree with it, and especially the existential threat part, uh, where you know people saw the new left and they said, "Ooh, you know, this, these people are are strange, and we we don't understand why they're so militant and they're so passionate." But some qualifications. We're really struck by how people across the left started to sound like new leftists as the 1970s proceeded. So many communists drifted into forms of new leftism. And one of the things our book is, if I may say so, quite innovative in is looking at the Communist Party records and all of you know, their grassroots records. It's really interesting. These, these people are seized with new left ideas of participatory democracy, and so is the NDP. Uh, and the liberals, as you point out, I mean, the liberals, but you know, you found liberals saying we're standing up for a classless society. Where you found the young liberals in 1969 saying we approve of a manifesto of revolt. Uh, and what the young liberals wanted was the legalization of all soft drugs. They wanted an end to poverty. They wanted tough anti pollution laws. They wanted democratically run prisons. These are the young liberals. They wanted the Canadianization of the Canadian labor movement. They wanted community-run, democratically-run public housing. So, you know, naturally, when some of those liberals encounter, encounter the, the liberal elders, they're, they're not welcomed too warmly. They leave the party eventually, lots of them. But the existential question you raise is that for both liberals and the old leftists, the new leftists are asking an uncomfortable question which is what does it really mean to live in a democracy? So, you know, in putting it down to, to worth terms, if you're working a nine to five job under an authoritarian boss, and then when you come home and you're all exhausted and your leisure activities are those provided to you by the corporate sector and they're just as top down, if you're a woman, you're asked to not only work that nine to five job, but you're also asked to attend to the needs of your, your partner and your family the head of your household. If you're a gay man, you're asked to keep your personal life in the shadows so that you aren't fired or beaten up. And lots of gay people are, are go through both experiences. If all these and other oppressive circumstances are limiting and basically squelching your life, what's democratic about it? What, what it really is our democracy? Is it just going to the the polling booth every four years or so and casting a vote for a candidate who's not going to remember you and you're not going to remember him. New leftists had a vision of life that was so much richer and fuller and deeper than that. And they really wanted a democracy that in which people could fulfill themselves and their dreams. So I think that gets quite core to the what's what's existentially alarming to people who've bought into the system is that new leftists are saying, well, really, you know, you've kind of settled for a pile of crap here because your life could be so much more. You could really be free if you just shook off the shackles of this oppressive society that we're in. 
Well, tell us a bit about some of the uh, key individuals in the Waffle and their brand of new left nationalism. Uh, how influential politically and intellectually was the Waffle? Yeah, I think when you raise the question of the Waffle, you always one of these really intricate questions because some Wafflers would have denied they were new leftists. And yet in our books, they sure sound like new leftists when they're going on about participatory democracy, when they're talking about self-determination for Quebec. This all sounds like great new left talk, right? And and certainly it doesn't fit with the old left ideals of the CCF NDP very precisely. So the two big figures that uh, became very famous were Jim Laxer, who died in 2018, and Mel Watkins, who died in spring of 2020. And I was very fortunate to interview Mel uh, early in, in 2020. Um, very important figures in what came to be called left nationalism. And for them, the great goal was the creation of an independent socialist Canada. So in our book, we, we really described the challenge the waffle posed to the party. And in, in addition to the nationalism, we really draw out other features. It's really strong push for socialist feminism. It's support for self-determination for Quebec. And in Watkins' case, especially the very enthusiastic embrace, early embrace of indigenous struggles. In Watkins' case, the, the struggle for of the Dene people against the Mackenzie Valley pipeline. So granted, the Waffle didn't succeed in transforming the party, but it really made a lasting contribution to it. And, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the ideas of the Waffle that were considered really far out in the 1970s, for example, gender parity, on the central committees of the NDP has now become a matter of common sense in the party, as has self-determination for Quebec. So the waffle got purged for its troubles. They, <laughs> the NDP really, you know, the mainstream NDPers thought they were communists in disguise. They didn't really understand where the waffle was coming from. The waffle was really, in my interpretation of it, really after this kind of form of radical, self-empowering democracy. You uh, describe the, uh, what you uh, term the three main identity-based movements that contributed to the new left. Uh, that is the anti-racist movement, particularly, I would think, black nationalism, but generally the anti-racist movement, the feminist movement, and the gay and lesbian movement. Can you summarize the contribution of each of these movements to the new left? Yeah, I could summarize it in one word, huge. <laughs> I think you probably want more than that. Well, th did that not, in a sense, really separate the new left, This the identity uh, nature of it from the old left? Yeah, in some ways it does. And also, it would certainly be a distortion to say all of these people loved each other and they all felt they were part of one big unified movement, right? However, from the way we look at it, like there's an older interpretation of the new left that says these are this is basically the white students. That's the new left. We say that's way too narrow. And and what really are animating all of these new leftists uh, are a, a bunch of other struggles that aren't easily distilled down to student politics. The anti-racist struggle is foundational for Toronto new leftism. Uh, right from the demonstrations against uh, the, South, the oppression of the Selma uh, protesters in 1965, uh, right through 
the rise of really serious race crisis in Toronto in the 1970s with people being killed and riots and so on, which I had always thought was a bit of left hyperbole until I got into it and said, oh, my goodness, this city is really uh, boiling over with racial tension. Uh, we really focus on particular incidents like the Afro-Canadian Ted Watkins, who was a star of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. He became a founder of the Afro-American Progressive Association and a voice for black power. But he got you know, typecast by the Toronto media, including the, the supposedly progressive Toronto Star, as a kind of apostle of hate and, and crazed apostle of armed violence, which he never really was. So. Uh, if you're trying to look at the history of anti-racism and ground your, get today's anti-racism in a historical perspective, you'd really want to go back to the 60s and 70s in Toronto. Where this, this is really where it's, it, it's starting to really happen and take on the dimensions of a mass movement. For feminists, this is, of course, a huge moment. And many of the founding moments of Canadian feminism are to be found in Toronto. From 1969 on, with the Toronto Women's Liberation Movement, the abortion caravan in 1970, which challenges Canada's abortion laws. Uh, daycare struggle at the University of Toronto is foundational. So lots of things that we take about for granted today about the rights of women, about uh, access to abortion, are only starting to come on stream in this period in 1969, 1970. And it's Toronto. I wouldn't say Toronto is the only part of this story by any means, but boy, those Toronto feminists are powerful, distinct, intelligent, and extremely determined to change the entire system. And then the third major identity uh, leftists that we talk, uh, talk about are the gay and lesbian movement. Uh, again, 1969 on, foundation of the Community Homophile Association of Toronto, merging into body politic, and then all through the 70s, a huge struggle for gay and lesbian rights, culminating in 1981 with the bathhouse raids, which was the largest single arrest in Toronto's history to that point. So it's a you know terrible tragedy for some. It drives some to suicide. It drives some to you know the abyss of public shame and and so on. But for the gay community, it's kind of a, a tremendous moment of affirmation. And here's another big thing I would say, in addition to these big three identity leftisms, we would add all the people who identified in solidarity with revolutionary movements around the globe, especially Latin Americans resisting US imperialism. So a core point the radical ambition tries to make is don't put these struggles into silos when you're writing their history. Sure, feminists naturally focus on women's liberation and the rise of feminism. Anti-racist activists today will go back and look at the anticipations of their movement. Uh, gays and lesbians will say that's when uh, pride started, for example. But a core point that we're trying to make is people went into all of these movements uh, sequentially, uh, almost in, in the course of an afternoon, you might be involved in one or two or three of them. So you know, if you go back to the example that we started with, with our young person in the annex and this co-op for this commune, uh, one of the things that, that person might well be doing is going to a national liberation support group, uh, going into a gay liberation group, going to a feminist group, uh, worrying about participatory democracy. This young new leftist might be involved in four or five of these distinct identity movements. We've tended to put them in silos. We think the history is much more, much richer 
and in many ways more complicated. People are going in and out of all these movements all the time. Right. Now, between the Lions Press, as well as some other publishers uh, in Toronto, uh, came, in a sense, the products of the new left. Uh, you've published a number of books between the lines. Uh, why did you choose to publish this particular book uh, and previous books with uh, Between the Line Press rather than a typical university uh, press? Yeah, I, you know, there, there are two ways of answering that question. One is the high-minded, idealistic way. I pretty well fully identify with the ideals of Between the Lines, and their motto is books without bosses. It does its damnedest to bridge the gap between academia and the general public. And I see it as an enduring new left experiment. So, you know, in many ways, I'm 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 an enduring new leftist. <laughs> I, I don't really claim to, I don't really claim to have moderated my views at all in uh, in 50 years that I've been interested in this. Uh I, I think I'm pretty much the same person as I was in 1968. I'm strongly attracted to the left-wing ideals of this publishing house. And I really think that a publishing house like this has a great message to other left-wing intellectuals. Speak English. Uh, speak language that people can have a hope of understanding. Don't sequester yourself in jargon and don't content yourself with just speaking to people of like mind. You got to get out into the world. This is a very new left sensibility. I fear sometimes academic leftists have kind of forgotten it. So that's the exalted answer, right? Uh, the less exalted answer, like the more self-interested answer, is that BTL just loves their books. Um, so if they agree to publish your text for you, they will give it a level of editorial care that only a publisher that loves books would uh, really allow. So. And I'd, I'd really like to pay homage to our, our editor, Robert Clark, who made this book so much more readable than it otherwise would have been. So yeah, I, I, you know, it's an academic book. Uh, it's long, it's detailed, it's got a, a long bibliography, which I kind of insisted we put in because I wanted this to be a springboard for other researchers. And it's definitely not gonna be the last word on the new left. I mean, I really want people to take this up and run with it. But I also hope that there's a lot of enjoyable qualities to the book and there's many good stories and anecdotes that maybe an academic press would say oh you know do we need to have so many stories well i think you need the stories to make it alive for people and the illustrations and you know that kind of set this the new left sense of humor so i think all of those help explain why i would go with between the lines rather than a mainstream academic publisher well, I must say they did an excellent, uh, absolutely superb job on the book. And what a great way to end our interview today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was Ian Mackay. He is the co-author with Peter Graham of Radical Ambition, The New Left in Canada, published by Between the Lines in 2019. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and really help support uh, this podcast. 
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on February 12, 2021, and it was produced by the ever-helpful Jessica Schmidt.